Hello, and welcome to the Ask Different Podcast, an unofficial podcast about Apple created by members of the Ask Different community. I'm Kyle Cronin, and joined with me today is Jason Salas. What's going on, Jason? Hey, Kyle. Good to be here. Uh, it's partly overcast and snowing here in Colorado, so that's pretty much all I can say about right now. <laughs> and uh, we've got uh, Nathan Greenstein. Uh, Nathan, how are you? I'm all right. Thanks. All right. Uh, well, we'll start with some Stack Exchange news. Uh, after a year-long hiatus, the Stack Overflow podcast is back, um, and they've renamed it the Stack Exchange podcast, uh, so it's more in line with the company. Um, were you guys listeners of the old podcast? I have actually not listened to... I, I didn't listen to anything they did before, and I'm probably going to catch up on the new episode this weekend. Did you listen to the... Uh, the old podcast at all, Nathan? No, I was before that. I wasn't uh, here before that. Oh, I see. Yeah, I um, yeah, I, I think that was like one of the first podcasts that I actually started listening to. Um, sort of what got me into into listening to podcasts, and um, it made me really sad when they stopped. So I'm really glad that they're back. Um, it appears that they're just sort of picking up. It, right where they left off, all the quirks and things that happened in the in the years past are, are still happening, apparently. So that's that's good news. All right. I'm pretty interested in it so far, especially because of the graphs of what they're talking about and the fact that what they call the geekiest sites being the ones with the most, uh, the, the most, the highest number of civilian users, as they called it. And it's... It's interesting to think about, but that's the kind of thing where people in their specialty that are not necessarily computer topics are now easiest to do with computers. Um, the ones that they point out specifically, Ubuntu, math, statistics, physics, and text. Um, text is for those uh, – for typesetting individuals, and you want to talk about something that didn't used to exist on computers. Uh, text is the the textual representation of all of the old editing marks and – information that you do in a in a in classically a written typesetting environment and then i need not even say about math stats and physics those are the oldest written or otherwise notated uh, uh i completely lost the word for this math stats and physics are the most classic analog evaluation and research fields and it's just that the computer tools are so spectacular and fast and much easier to calculate with a computer than anything else that people have to learn computers in order to use these tools more effectively. Although I think there's a certain amount of, um, um, at least people in some disciplines, they only want to learn uh, the minimum requirements to use the tools. Um, I'm just thinking about some some of the people in the math, on the math site, um, and how there was there was one person that was having a little trouble uh adjusting to the way that the comments worked on the site and that caused a big issue um mm -hmm. but but um yeah i remember reading something a while back talking about how scientists in their specific fields how they learn just enough to program and as a result they make all of the common mistakes and their software the software for the sake of the software isn't necessarily the the best quality that you can find but it only exists to serve to improve their particular fields calculations that much more 
So right, it's nice exactly. to see that sites are actually being set up to do this kind of thing for them to help them out with these processes. Yeah, you'd almost it's almost you could equate it to um like um the ability to write, you know, they they know how to write only so much as they can, you know, generate a technical paper. You know, they're not mm-hmm. going to be writing prose or anything like that mm-hmm. um that has any use beyond uh communicating the information that they want to communicate. Right. So, um, so our our first topic of today is um, we have there was a bit of uh, an issue um, that arose over the past week or so where people discovered that their iPhones were tracking them everywhere they went, and this this information was stored in an unencrypted file in the backup. Uh, if you hadn't encrypted your backup in iTunes, then this file was just there on your computer and. Uh, it was very easy to run a program and to see everywhere you've been over the last, I don't know, six months or something. Anyway, I, I ran it on mine and it gave me six months, so it was a little, uh, a little disconcerting to see that information, you know, being cataloged and recorded about my my whereabouts and activities. Did you guys have any uh, takes on that? Mine's actually pretty interesting considering what I've done in the past year or so. Um, I. I expected that I was going to open up the iPhone tracker software that had been written for this and see a very high concentration of of information about the area that I live in and then commute daily. And then I, I go north to Fort Collins, which is pretty close to the border of northern Colorado, and then I head down to uh, Colorado Springs south of me quite often. And so I just kind of expected to see this little line uh, in the general uh, just north of central Colorado. Um but it definitely puts things into perspective about just how long they've actually been tracking this information because last year I took a trip down to Arizona and I saw the entire line from I-25 to I-40. And curiously enough, not any of the back roads that I take, I don't take I-17 into Phoenix. I take a couple of side little highways and the, the hits, for lack of a better term, go all the way to about uh, maybe 30 miles past the border, and then they just drop off until I'm generally coming into the uh, the Phoenix area. And then I took a different route back to uh, meet up with a couple of friends that are outside of the main highways, and I can trace the entire line of exactly where I was. It's It's really surprising, and it's really interesting to see some of the outliers uh, in places that I've never been, so I wonder if it somehow just erroneously recorded this information uh but in general it's for given the amount of time and given the amount of data it's interesting to be able to put you in a certain place at a certain time even with a reasonable degree of accuracy yeah i I had the same sort of thing um uh, back in um I think it was either October or November. I don't remember which, but I had taken a like a little drive around the uh, the White Mountains of New Hampshire, and apparently my iPhone thought that at some point I was actually in Vermont, even though <laughs> I never was in Vermont. <laughs> so, um, yeah, the data is not too accurate, un- unfortunately. Well, fortunately, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, but. Uh, I, I just hope it's not, you know, ever used like in a court of law where it says, "Oh, your iPhone says you were at this location," and it was some sort of um, calibration error or erroneous data or something like that. Because that's, I mean, it happened to you. It happened to me. It's probably happening to a lot of a lot of other people. Mm-hmm. 
And I think the information said that this was purely based off cell towers and not Wi-Fi networks or anything like that. I've actually heard like com- conflicting things. Um, some people say that it's it's cell tower triangulation. I've heard other people say that it's the um, uh, the skyhook or whatever thing that they're using um, to triangulate based on um, Wi-Fi Wi-Fi, ne- Wi-Fi networks alone, and that's just it's just a cache for that. Um, I don't think I've seen a straight answer, um, and it's probably like a mix of both. I think the that the uh, most Accurate speculation is probably that uh, I, Apple is collecting this information to use in their own Skyhook-like network um, service. We know, we know from quite some time ago that they routinely upload via cellular networks only, so only cellular-capable devices, uh, 3G iPads, and then obviously iPhones on the whole. We know that they take a bunch of information about signal quality location, and they upload it at all hours of the night, overnight. And it's uh, supposedly it's free data. I don't know exactly how they market as such. Um, but this is definitely, it was really interesting when this came out because that was the connection that I drew is that this is the cache that they use with time information in order to, and somewhere else there might be the information on what kind of signal quality you had. Um, and there's also something in there about drop call counts and call failure counts. And this is just one piece of that puzzle so that the phone itself can put all of this information together and send it to Apple and and or likely the carrier that you're using in order to actually provide anonymous diagnostic information. Yeah, um, if it was truly anonymous, I would have absolutely no problem with that. You know, um, helping them increase the the quality of their network by giving them more accurate data about where it has problems is it just makes sense to me. Uh, where it sort of breaks down is that obviously you know this is being cataloged per iPhone, and there's no way to tell whether or not that um, the individual uh, identifiable uh, data is being removed uh, after it's being transmitted. So that's sort of what makes me a little uh, wary uh, about uh, this whole thing. The only identifiable information is the phone number that presumably would would be a part of the communication that it sends. Uh, and presumably that information doesn't get stored. It's the, the the way that I kind of equate it is that they have a huge database that they that they store only aggregate information in. Um, they have to the, the the information comes via a specific phone number. There's no doubt about that. Or perhaps the the IMEI or some information that comes with the SIM. And then we certainly don't know this for sure, but they store the strength levels, they store the failure counts, and they store the physical locations, and they discard anything else. It's only used as a part of the transmission process. Uh, granted, again, that's all speculation, and I certainly don't know that for sure, but this is th- that's the big picture that I'm putting together from everything that I've heard about this now and from just uh, press information in the past. Yeah. Have you run uh, the app for your iPhone, Nathan? I don't have an iPhone. You don't have an iPhone, so I guess it doesn't matter. All right. It's one of the safe ones. <laughs> yeah, that's good. <laughs> I've actually, I mean, uh, not seriously, but I've I've so- somewhat contemplated that, you know, maybe my next iPhone won't be an iPhone. Maybe it'll be an iPod Touch, and then I'll get, like, a separate just 
cheap track phone or something like that uh, because of this sort of privacy issue where I think my iPhone's probably keeping a little too much information about about me. <laughs> um, yeah, speaking of security, um, I think I think we want to sort of go into our main topic, which is security, and we wanted to provide some tips for our listeners about how they can uh, be more secure on the web, on their Macs, and with their iOS devices. So, uh, Jason, I think you had some tips for some web security. Did you want to go through those? Yeah, these are these are things that presumably you've heard plenty often, and really they're good tips, and they should be practiced pretty constantly. And one one near and dear to my heart is that I've been using uh, since Steve Gibson's recommendation on uh, Security Now, one of the podcasts that he does with Leo on the Twit Network, um, is a little utility called LastPass. Um, I I used one password for a period of time, um, but. I preferred the ability for it to exist outside of simply my computer. Uh, there's a lot of different ways of doing that. A lot of a lot of places. Uh, I'm sorry. A lot of people do one password library syncing, but I preferred something that was kind of geared towards anything in the first place, so that I don't have, especially if I'm at a computer that I don't want to download an app and install on. I still want to be able to have access to information that I store in it. Um, LastPass. So- go ahead. Oh yeah, I was just I was just gonna say. So for people that don't maybe know what one password or, or LastPass are, could you just give a brief overview? Of one what- password is uh, most most browsers have password management and can also pull out other information for like filling out order forms. They'll store your name, your address, your phone number, your email address, uh, a, a password if you have to create an account, and then of course the usernames that correspond to those. One password is a third party utility that I do believe is Mac and iOS only. Um, and it has it runs its own encrypted database. In order to do anything with one password, you have to have a master password, uh, which basically serves as the key to encrypt the entire database. And it's just a store of whatever whatever information you want uh, you want to have in it. It can it can just store sensitive text information like perhaps credit card information, general account information, uh, medical accounts, what have you. And then it encrypts all of it and stores it on your computer. Um, there are many, many applications like this. And the the key point to make is that it is encrypted in a way that it looks completely unreadable. It is just garbage to somebody who would pick it up until you put in the master password, which serves as the actual act of decrypting it. Um, there are solutions for this for every operating system. As I said, 1Password is Mac and iOS only at the moment. Uh, so the solution that I've taken to liking the most is called LastPass, which is the same theory in the sense that the data that you get is just this jumbled blob of encrypted randomness until you put in your password to actually unlock it. So they own and they operate LastPass.com, and you can access it from their website. But the key is is that they... There is nothing they can do to give this information. If something happens to the master password, it's it's lost forever. Um, and the reason why I prefer it is because they have been thoroughly vetted by the security. They, they run completely client-side. So when you look up your information, it doesn't run some server-side PHP or other kind of technology to decrypt this information. It gives you your data that you unlock with your password via client-side technology, i.e. JavaScript. 
so you have all of your information on you. Uh, you have all of your information provided to you by the server, but only because you put in your password to unlock it does it actually become accessible. Um, as a result, it generally doesn't run as an application. They make, they maintain plugins for every browser um, that essentially just makes web calls again with the same encrypted, uh, the, the same authentication scheme to actually make it available. So if I have my iPhone on me, there is an iPhone application to bring this information on. If I'm using my computer, I have a plugin for Chrome built in to be able to actually unlock that database and do everything you would expect with regard to pre-filling forms, automatically logging into sites, and so on. But if I'm not at either of those, then they have a website that I'm able to go retrieve information from. If I'm perhaps at a, a, a merchant of some sort, a doctor's office or something like that, and I need to bring up information, if I don't have a benefits card on me, then I have that information stored. I log into the website, and I can pull up that information right there. Uh, it's it's really the web geardness that made it better for me and what drove me to actually pick it. Does it cost anything? That I was just about to say I probably should add that in. If you only use it with local storage and set up a facility to maintain it yourself, then it's free. The, the data will exist solely on your computer. Done. Uh, it is $1 a month or more specifically because you can only pay for it at a year at a time. It's 12 bucks a year for them to actually store it server side again in the encrypted format that requires the entire process to work. Well, 12 bucks a year. I think that's, that's nothing, you know, when you consider the implications of having your security, um, uh, compromised. Mm -hmm. So did, did you have any other tips for web security? Um, the, and the ones going back to the ones that you hear often, um, especially with, uh, with the continuing news that we hear the, um, the Epsilon breach most recently, and just all of these times when you hear about uh, a bank's authentication, not, not credit card information, but an authentication storage being compromised, the unique password per site goes a long way to saving you because, People aren't hacking into Facebook in order to get your information. They're hacking into some small little web forum that you go to that stores on encrypted forums. They take your information, they plug it into Facebook, or worse, your bank, and they have access to your information. A random password per site goes a long way, and all of the applications that I've talked about, 1Password, LastPass, there's RoboPass, and there is a handful of any of them for your environment, are... a I can't express how important this really is nowadays with uh, just security, the the basic fact of security, uh, do it. <laughs> yeah, secu I, I can't security put nowadays, you know, you, you can't be too careful. Use a unique password per a site, and even if it's just coming up with a slight representation to change the password, just make it unique. It saves you from all of the automated attacks. Um, strong passwords are equally important because if your password is your or someone else's name, uh, someone knows you and want to do something nefarious, they're going to log in as you in a heartbeat. Uh, same goes for dictionary attacks. A word will be a, a password that is simply a word or a word with maybe one or two other characters will be, will be compromised in minutes. So something pseudo random, mixed case numbers, special characters, completely worth it um the security is 
secure protocols are coming up more and more and more. Um, Facebook, Twitter, Gmail, and I'm sure a handful of other sites have all rolled out features for you to always use SSL when browsing their website. Find those features in your account preferences. Turn them on. You always want to be using SSL uh, absolutely when you're doing when you're logging in when you're doing any kind of authenticated request but to have that browsing have to have that on at all times when you're browsing it's not it's not expensive anymore this does this isn't hard for computers anymore uh having ssl on where possible when possible is an absolute must um and lastly when you're in your own home learn your router's information turn on wpa2 uh Sorry to anybody that has a classic Nintendo DS. WEP is not good enough. Uh, that There are utilities out there in order to gather information and be able to log into your router and do whatever they want to with it within hours at worst and minutes at best. Flip that around. Hours at best and minutes at worst. Um, open, open Wi-Fi is not going to save anything, even if you have MAC address filtering on, which is something that I actually did myself for quite a while, because, yes, only certain computers can communicate with the router uh, in terms of actually being able to use as a gateway to get out to the Internet. But by nature of the wireless access point being open means everything is unencrypted. So nobody else could use your router to communicate with the outside world but everything you're doing can be freely sniffed because it is a wireless protocol. Actually, it's it's even worse than that because um, because you can sniff the network, you can identify the MAC addresses of computers that are allowed to use it, mm-hmm. and some computers and some wireless um, adapters let you change the MAC address. And, and so you just masquerade yeah, you, as someone else, and then exactly. you have so, everything you need. So MAC address filtering provides absolutely no security. Um, it provides maybe you know a five-minute speed bump for someone that really wants to access your network. So mm-hmm. it's good for, I guess, be- keeping honest people honest, but, you know, for everyone that's else... That's not all the world is made up of anymore. <laughs> exactly. WPA2 protection, that's that's on every consumer router, and if you don't have it, you need it. Yeah, and um, Apple products have supported WPA2 for, like, what, five, six years now? So... Uh, Pretty much every piece of Apple hardware that you've purchased within the five, past five or six years will support the protocol. So if you don't have a router that can that can do it, um, my suggestion is go right now, go to Walmart and buy one because you don't want someone connecting to your network uh, and accessing your computers or um, doing stuff with your internet connection that you could be responsible for. Yeah, the the lit- the the indirect litigation is. Uh, bad enough, but just think of anything else that you do in your own home. Anything that you do, online banking or what have you, that will all be openly available if you use... Uh, not, that will be easily available if you're using anything less than WPA. Cannot stress this information enough. Right. So, Nathan, I think you had a few tips for Mac security. Yep. Um, first of all, is obvious, make sure you have a password set on your account for for your Mac and disable auto login. And if you want to go a little farther, you can turn on the, uh, I think it's called the classic login screen where you have to type in both the username and password. Mm. And so that makes it one step harder for somebody to get in. They have to guess two things. Um, file vault is, it encrypts your home folder. Is that all it? Is it just the home folder? Yes. Yeah. 
and encrypts your home folder so can be um, can be cumbersome if you if you need to copy files between machines or that sort of thing but if you've got a laptop you're worried about somebody pulling out your hard drive it can be helpful um, a firmware password is something activated by the the uh, operating system disk so if you boot to that you can go to the utilities menu and select firmware password utility and if you set a firmware password it basically makes it so that it's impossible for people to reset your password and otherwise if you don't set one anybody can reset the password on your machine um, another thing that can be can be helpful if you if you're worried about somebody pulling out your hard drive is um, securely erasing your files and so the finder's trash bin um, gives you an option under the finder preferences to secure empty trash and how that works is when you empty your trash instead of just marking the files as overwritable which is what it does normally it uh, overwrites them with random random garbage and then deletes those so you can't restore the files and you can also turn that on with disk utility so when you erase a, di a hard drive you can do the same thing and overwrite it with garbage yeah i um i find it takes forever but um it's uh, if you don't do that it's trivial to pull uh deleted files off the drive in fact i had recently hosed a, a 2 terabyte drive um it, I just completely got rid of like all the, the 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 file system stuff at the beginning of the drive, and I I found a tool that was able to restore all my files, and you know they're they're perfect like nothing's happened to them. So if you don't securely erase something, then it will definitely be very easy to to uh, to pick up, especially if it's just been freshly erased. So this is this is one of those things that you hear about whenever somebody uh donates a computer sells it uh ebay's any components or anything like that that the new buyer the, there are companies and people that will buy storage media with the with the sole purpose of running recovery software on it and extracting whatever information they can uh, people, people who store credit card information in a text file in their documents folder, for example, yeah, they deleted it before they gave it away, but then recovery software just brought it right back up in a hurry. Yeah, even if like you, you know, you 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 be you're smart and you decide to format the drive and reinstall the operating system, uh, it's not going to overwrite every single bit on the drive. So you're still going to have files and stuff that. They're not part of the file system, but they're still on the drive, and they're they're accessible to anyone that wants them. So, if if the computer is leaving your custody, like permanently, if you're selling it or giving it away, uh, you have to do a secure erase. At least at least uh, one pass, um, preferably multiple passes, because that makes it more difficult. But a single pass is usually sufficient to make sure that all your information is irretrievable. I like the uh, the blurb that OSX has in the disk utility that they actually point out the specific military practice that says seven passes is good enough to blank everything. And on a on a modern stock hard drive, meaning uh, computers still usually come with uh, anywhere between 320 to maybe 500 gigs or a little bit more if you don't do advanced customization options. Um, 
that the seven passes takes about two days, and I actually did that for myself once this year already. I pulled it pulled it out of an otherwise dead computer, took everything off that I needed to, stuck it in a uh, external drive chassis, and then ran a seven pass race on it. And it, I came back two days later, and I could finally put it back in the computer and uh, get it get it to somebody who was going to repair it and then buy it for themselves. Yeah, it takes a long time, but um, you know you can't be too careful with your data because. You know, you may have had your computer for three, four years, and who knows what you put on that hard drive. You may have forgotten. <laughs> so it's always better be, to be safe than sorry. Mm-hmm. And there was one one tip I wanted to mention uh, that Nathan didn't. It's uh, make sure you turn off all uh, non-essential services. So um, you may have turned on, like, uh, file sharing or something like that to share files between different Macs in your household or... Uh, <coughs> Just there's a few services the Mac OS X has built in that that uh, you can uh, have it uh, provide services on your on your network, and um, there's always the possibility that one of those services will be compromised in some way. And so, especially if you're leaving your own you know encrypted, protected, locked down network, you know you want to make sure that um, there's preferably nothing running, but you want to limit the, the, the stuff that you have uh, that's ex- able to receive um, uh, data connections from, from other computers on the network that you may be using. So I typically, I run with SSH turned on um, because that's you know historically been like the most secure service and that's it. Um, I, I ha- always have it on just in case there's something that I need on my computer um, and I don't, I don't worry about it being compromised because um, it's been designed specifically to prevent that. But um, I don't really trust anything else. <laughs> and um, I also wanted just to mention a, a few uh, tips for iOS security. Um, one of the things that uh, Apple has provided recently is a free uh, Find Your iPhone account. Um, it's more useful for iPhones than it is for um, iPod Touches and Wi-Fi-only iPads, but basically it provides uh, you with the capability of uh, locating your device uh, through the cellular cellular network and GPS. So if you lose your device or um, it gets stolen, you can you can find out where it is. Um, and if it, if it really was stolen, it also provides the capability that you can securely erase everything on the device so that you won't, I mean, you won't have your device back, but at least um, no one that has the device will be able to uh, get any of your personal information that's on it. And sort of in that same vein, I, uh, I would highly recommend setting a pin um, that will lock uh, your device once you turn the power off. I have mine set to... Uh, ask for a pin immediately, just because, um, you know, if if I might be in a situation where I need to lock my device, I want to know that if I just hit that power button, that the 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 entire thing is locked, and that someone won't be able to just come along, pick it up, and 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 access my my files. Um, setting a pin also uh, makes it so that if it's locked by a pin and you connect it to an iTunes uh, instance, that's that's not the iTunes instance that you sync with, then it will. The iTunes will say that the device is locked with a pin. You need to unlock the device before you can uh, access any of the files on it. So by setting a pin, you're not only protecting the device, but you're protecting it from you know connecting to a computer. 
and, and being able to pull, uh, having the computer being able to pull the information off of it. And one final note, uh, sort of uh, harking back to the iPhone tracking, um, the way the iPhone tracking software works is that uh, on the Mac is that uh, it looks for the unencrypted backup files for your iPhone and then it reads the, the uh, location database and then provides a map based on that. Um, however, if you encrypt your backups, then you don't, then it's not possible to run that without the password. So my suggestion is to always encrypt your backups. Um, you know, once you encrypt the backup, you enter a password. If without the password, you won't be able to decrypt the backup. And you can set keychain to remember it if you want. Um, that's, I think, acceptable because then only iTunes will be able to access that password. Um, anyone else would have to have your login password to your to your device, which hopefully you've secured based on um, Nathan's advice. There's actually one more thing that takes it a, a, a bit above and beyond, but is actually an interesting feature nonetheless, as long as you don't have a, uh, a young kid that likes to try to defeat your, uh, your unlock code on your phone. There is a feature built in to the iPhone that will lock, uh, permanently lock, wipe, and wipe the entire device after 10 failed pin inputs. So it's it's a double-edged sword in my in my own personal experience because in previous phones I've had people have been uh, they'll pick up my phone and just kind of toy around with it and they'll try to guess some kind of a they'll try to guess the pin and they'll be persistent uh, the the specific case that we had before uh, a friend of me and we're driving uh, we're driving and he took my phone and then he just started trying to guess the pin. Uh, at the time, presumably based off the letters that were to spell out a four-letter word that were attached to any of the numbers. And he probably gave it a good 40 to 50 tries before he actually gave up and got bored with the process. Um, but for those absolutely sensitive absolutely sensitive situations, then the phone can lock and wipe itself after 10 tries. And it's it's kind of of little consequence to you outside of time because as long as you have an active backup in iTunes, you get all that information back the next time you sync it. Yeah, it's a pain, you know. Choose your friends better, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, no that that is also an option that you could have. Um, another security related thing that happened recently is, um, well, I shouldn't say happened, but. Um, Dropbox has recently come under greater scrutiny for what they claim their security practices are and what what they're actually doing. Uh, specifically, uh, Dropbox's website claims you know that it's encrypted by 256-bit uh, AES encryption, and and they have all these these impressive qualifications. But then, if you sort of break it down and see that um, you know you, you're not the, the the information when you go to the Dropbox website is not decrypted locally like it is um, with LastPass. It's actually decrypted on the server, which means that they have, yeah, they may have encrypted your information, but they also have the encryption keys as well. <laughs> so um, all that encryption is really preventing you f- from is a breach in Amazon's uh, S3, which I'll admit is important, but um, ultimately what you have to do is you have to rely on Dropbox. You have to trust Dropbox with the files that you put on their service. And Dropbox has obviously said that the, you know they comply with any law enforcement requests that they receive, and you know they said that they will that they try to notify people when 
when they receive requests for their information, but um, the Justice Department has uh, a great fondness for their um, oh, what are they called? Gag orders. Gag orders. Yes. <laughs> Uh, that prevent them from even discussing that. So it's one of those things where if you really need something secured, um, either use a different service that allows you to encrypt and decrypt locally or use um, – uh, Apple has something built in where you can create a disk image that's encrypted. You can store the disk image in your Dropbox folder and then you know, from whatever Mac that you're using, you can just open it, decrypt it, and then use it and then – and then it stays encrypted because it's being encrypted and decrypted locally. Um, there's also there was also another issue where um, if a certain file was lifted from your computer, like you know, suppose you had uh, authenticated Dropbox with your computer, um, in addition to obviously people having access to your physical computer at that time, they could also copy a specific file from um, it's somewhere in the Dropbox configuration. But what that will do is they can then use that file on a different computer and then continue to pull down all your Dropbox information as stuff changes. Because to Dropbox, um, it's the same computer. So it's one of those things where um, you definitely have to um, protect not only your your physical security of your computer, but you also have to be um, aware that uh, even if... um, you aren't compromised at a specific time, at least you don't think you are, uh, information that you put in Dropbox can still be made available to someone that had, that had compromised you uh, at a previous date. This file that they extract, I remember seeing the article, but I don't remember all of the details in it. This file that they can extract off your computer and drop it on theirs, it's basically, it's is it something hidden that exists in the, the the actual Dropbox shared folder, or is it another file somewhere in perhaps the library uh, contents of your system? I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure it was in the library, okay. um, but I'm not positive. Obviously, but Windows may not even be hidden. It's just the specific location that they store. Uh, presumably, it's a it's a credentials it's a credentials file. Exactly. I mean, you know, you'd expect this because obviously Dropbox doesn't ask for your password every time you change something. Mm-hmm. So you know that um, there's something on your computer that um, a Dropbox is able to to send to the servers, and, and it, there's an assumed trust based on that. Um, what is kind of odd is that they're not doing any sort of uh, checking to make sure that uh, the, the file that is on the same device that it it was created on. Like every every Mac has the ability to provide a unique identifier to any program that's running. And I'm surprised that Dropbox doesn't use that identifier to make sure that if I copy this file to a different Mac, that, you know, if, if I were Dropbox, I'd, I'd, I'd have that reauthorize. Um, and iTunes is smart would like this. You know, if you copy your iTunes library to a different computer, it'll say, you know, all your authorized purchases are not authorized for this computer. You have to reauthorize. So um, my suggestion to Dropbox is to implement a similar thing. But, um, yeah, it's one of those things where, like, you have to try – you have to be secure for, like, every every area of your computer, like – uh, you can't just have Dropbox secure, but have you know not have a password, or you can't have a password but have Dropbox wide open. It's one of those things where uh, you really have to be 
conscious about the entire uh, ecosystem that you have. And there's, a, there's a lot of levels of security involved in everything. And unfortunately, when one is breached, potentially, they're all breached. Uh, you know, the, the situation always changes, and that, that goes back to a unique password everywhere and everything else. Um, but it, generally speaking, with a vast majority of people, uh, there are there are ten layers, but unfortunately, you might be able to get through all ten layers with just the uh, with just compromised information out of one of them. Right. Yeah. This whole <laughs> this whole security thing, I I I understand the ramifications, but I think the I think the response has kind of gone away from the whole point. Um, Dropbox is not a private backup service. Um, there, there, there is fault in this, exactly as you just explained, Kyle. There is fault in this unprotected credentials file that can be blanketly copied to any other system. That needs to be fixed, period. Uh, there, there's, no, there's no ifs, ands, or buts about, around that. Um, but the whole rest of the security, the things that people are really faulting Dropbox for, it's kind of not their fault in the sense that it's not really the intention of the service. Um, Dropbox heralds itself on being the fact that it's a multi-system and multi-user system. So there's not one specific thing that they can do to privatize it for, in our case, three different people. There's no, there's no way that you can have one piece of information unique to three people and keep it safe uh, for the fourth person, the middle person, that being Dropbox. Um, there's people talking about, I'm, I'm going to take all my backups elsewhere. Do that. You should. Uh, things like Carbonite backup, things like Jungle Disk backup, things like Mosey backup, and even LastPass. Those are meant to be a single-person secure storage. But in the case of this blanket syncing system, yes, they're encrypted against uh, people not part of the conversation being blocked, uh, being blocked from compromising the storage. But there has to be some kind of a mechanism for for multiple people to share the same content. Um, if if it's supposed to be just for you, you shouldn't be using a sharing service, and Dropbox is a sharing service. Right, that's, that's an excellent that. point, yeah. Yeah, um, so, I mean, for me, the, the Dropbox things, I mean, it was informative, but it doesn't change my use of Dropbox. Um I still trust the company enough to put, you know, semi-private information on there, but I'm not going to give them my, uh, you know, my password to my email account or anything like that. So um, I'm perfectly fine using Dropbox for what they intend, and the security is adequate for me. You trust them to manage your personal data, in the but to say that you don't, you won't use them to store your private personal. Data. That's that's an excellent distinction. Yes, that's that's absolutely correct. And if that if that situation changes, I will most likely create a um a encrypted disk image within Dropbox and use that. So, I've actually considered paying uh switching to a paid plan in in Dropbox because I'm I'm sort of inching my way up to the uh, the free limit. <laughs> um and you know that's that's due to uh, I'm finding more and more uses for Dropbox, and and we'll get to that in a second. 
but um, yeah, I think Dropbox is is an excellent service, and um, it's 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 been very useful even even for the um, production of this podcast. So uh, I encourage people not to be discouraged by you know some of the things that have been said about uh, the security of Dropbox, and just just be aware of the limitations of the service. That's all I'm asking. Absolutely. So our question of the week is actually. Um, what are some of the great Dropbox uses? And this is a question that was asked. Um, let me see if I can pull it up here. When was this asked? By Nook. Nook. Um, oh, wrong one. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, you can tell I'm prepared. Mm. Yes, Nook, and you see. Uh, looks like this question was asked... On April 12th. All right. And the question goes, there are a number of ways I use my Dropbox with OS X apps or iOS devices, some of them including recipe tracking, uh, iCal Sync, and PDF to iBooks. And um, he's basically encouraging people to uh, leave notes about the, the way that people are using Dropbox themselves. So did you guys have any... Um, any useful tips on on how Dropbox can be used for for different things? Go, Nathan. Go, Nathan. Nathan. Oh, oh. <laughs> oh all right. <laughs> Let's see. I use I use Dropbox to. Well, I use that Text Expander three, which is like um, autocorrect extreme, where you can, you you set a shortcut for something and then you type it and expands it to something else. It's got a lot of other powerful uh, stuff, so I use that a lot. But then, that I sync that with Dropbox, so that I I have that on all my computers. Um, I sync some macros for mice and keyboard. Um, I sync Minecraft saves, and and all of my my school documents and and web development stuff. That's all all in there, and that's all stuff that I don't really want to share per se. But I don't care if you know, there's nothing compromising in there if that gets looked at by some Dropbox employee. Okay. Did you have a? Did you have any specific apps that uh, you use with Dropbox that uh, would be useful? Um, well, I use a little utility sometimes for setup called MacDropAny, which is a little. It just makes it easier to use Dropbox on folders and files that aren't in the Dropbox folder. And it, it's just symlinks, so you could do it by the command line, but I get lazy and use this instead sometimes. Um, and that's it's nice, so, because I can't put everything in the Dropbox folder just because other apps expect things to be in certain places and that sort of thing. Yeah, unfortunately, um, when Dropbox introduced Selective Sync, I, I was really excited, but then I realized it was syncing from Dropbox to your computer, not your computer to Dropbox. So I couldn't say, for example, say, you know, Dropbox sync my entire home folder except, you know, these certain folders. Um, it was more like um, I can sync down certain aspects of my online Dropbox, which was unfortunate, but uh, hopefully they're working on a way to make that a little more um, universal. And in the meantime, MacDropBinny seems to be a nice... Uh middle ground for managing that at least easier than all of the symlink uh, a lot of the symlink processes that people do write-ups for 
Yeah, I have a bunch of Simlinks in my Dropbox to uh, for that purpose. And the Simlink syntax on the terminal always trips me up. I like I always do it wrong every time. I do it backwards. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> who yep, does here? Yeah, I, I don't know who designed that utility, but uh, yeah, it's it's clearly broken that um, most people expect it to operate the opposite way. <laughs> uh, did you have a, an app that you wanted to share um, to interface with Dropbox, uh, Jason? Unfortunately, mine's not actually an app. It's more of a it's more of a specific classical use just to kind of put a use case in there the funny thing is that when i set this up i did use a symlink and it's still in place and so something tells me i'm actually going to drop mac drop any in there instead um the number one use that i do for dropbox is something that happens at least a couple times a week uh downstairs in our basement i have a mac mini driving a step mania which is a uh dance dance revolution uh computer uh simulator um so we have we have two dance pads set up down in the basement and then just a a pretty powerful two speaker with a with a subwoofer system and then as i said the mac mini and of course a monitor set up that set up down there for playing um I have a big history of being very interested in the information that these games provide. Step Mania provides a rough calculation of calories burned, and then it stores all of your records, all of your high scores, all of your personal bests, and then some in some of their informative files. And uh, this this computer downstairs, this Mac Mini, is always off unless we're playing. It It quite literally turns on, automatically logs in, and fires up Step Mania. And when you quit Step Mania, unfortunately, I don't have the reverse worked out, so you still have to shut it down manually. But that is its one sole purpose. Um, And so the only other thing that I did in customizing that computer is I set up Dropbox, and I linked our scores into it. So whenever a song completes and these statistics files are updated, they're instantly put onto Dropbox so that I can access it anywhere else. And the the key use that I have for that is that I bring it onto, I have that information local to my computer, which I can then run, uh, I, I can run scripts that I've developed against it, and I can actually visualize this information. Um, I'm trying to finish off a little personal web tracker that I can use to reference our scores and figure out things if I want to improve or just pick whatever songs I want to kind of work on to get better for. And all of this data is immediately available to me because as soon as it was update. As soon as it was updated, it was available more than just on that computer. So I don't have to leave it on and remote into it and co- and uh, drill down into the file system and copy it across to my computer. It happens within seconds of song completion. Uh, it's kind of hilarious whenever I'm at work and I see the Dropbox notifications that some files have updated because I just kind of think to myself, oh, somebody's downstairs playing. Oh, that sounds pretty fun <laughs> right now. Uh, but unfortunately, I can't do it because I'm not home. But it's so- it's, a, it's a classical use, but it works astoundingly well yeah i'm i'm just amazed at how quickly the files uh, are updated um you know it's always like you know i change something on the web interface or i upload from my iphone and it's like you know one second later or two seconds later it's on my on my mac it's just i'm just blown away at how fast it is um now are you, are you using one Dropbox account between your, your Stepmania, Mac Mini, and the rest of your stuff? Yeah, it's just my own account that I have on that, my laptop, and then uh, one other computer somewhere. Now, do you have anything else in there besides your Stepmania scores? Um, I've kind of 
toyed around with the gallery aspect of it as well because Stepmania can also save screenshots of the ending results screen. Well, it can take pictures of anything, but when you're playing the game, you generally don't say, oh, I'm going to go press the print screen button on the keyboard. No, we don't do that. Um, so one of those things, I, I kind of tinkered with an automatic gallery uh, using the built-in gallery feature of Dropbox. Uh, taking screenshots that were taken and automatically dumping them in there. The limitation and the only reason why I stopped is that there's not... uh, I don't go back and add in information that could actually explain anything about it, uh, but it it is just something that I did once upon a time. Okay. Well, I was just... I was more wondering, like, for for your other computers, do you store any other files in your Dropbox? I'm... (laughs) Uh, since I'm now using a laptop and since the since a Mac Mini isn't my only uh, desktop computer anymore, uh, unfortunately everything is pretty well confined just to my computer and then I do have an off-site backup service. Uh, I do use Carbonite to back up my stuff, but because I have a laptop and because it is my computer, my only computer that I use the vast majority of the time, uh, Dropbox is relegated just to Stepmania syncing right now. Okay, all right. Well, I was just concerned because... You know, it sounds like, in the interest of um, efficiency, you don't really have any security on your on your Mac Mini for your first step mania, mm-hmm. and I was just concerned that you know if if it was compromised in some way that uh, they anyone had that had that computer would be access have access to all your Dropbox information, but uh, it doesn't sound like that's a problem. For people that uh, if people that are listening that um, do have a, a problem like that. Um, one thing that you can do is you can actually set up a separate Dropbox account specifically for, say, for example, your Stepmania. And then so you log into that on your Stepmania computer, and then you share a folder with your primary Dropbox account. Um, so that way you get all the benefits of having you know your scores and your screenshots and whatever sent automatically to your main Dropbox account. But if that account is compromised, then... All they have access to are your Stepmania scores. That's so. a really good idea. And since all of the accounts are free and two gigs, uh, <laughs> I don't know anybody who doesn't have multiple email addresses. Not that not that this is a very good thing to admit, but I can. That's that's a really good point. I can. I should probably go downstairs and uh, use a different account on there because then that computer will be absolutely scrubbed of anything. And if we, you know, if we leave a nefarious person down in our basement, this sounds like such a silly situation, but it's honestly very true. If somebody is ever on that computer for any reason, I no longer have to worry about it. And yeah. given given the age of it and going back multiple topics, uh I'm pretty sure the password on my Dropbox account is still used pretty heavily. It's it's a password that I've been phasing out, but I still use it in many places and I know that for a fact. So changing that out, yeah, I think I'm definitely going to take that advice. Yeah, I just, I, I, I should say that's not, I, I wish I could take credit for that, but uh, I actually got that idea from Dan Benjamin. He mentioned it on the um, Build and Analyze podcast for how he was going to uh, publish his um, his static blog files. It's a, it's a great podcast if anyone wants to listen to it. It's, it's with Dan Benjamin uh, from 5 by 5 and Marco Arment, the creator of Instapaper. They talk about... Um, iOS development and web development and stuff like that. It's a really fascinating uh, podcast. He does a lot of podcasts, and he does them (laughs) with a lot of big names. I know. He's got John Gruber, which is just, I mean, John Gruber is sort of like the big whale of the uh, the Apple um, (laughs) press. He said the big whale, not the fail whale. Right. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. 
But yeah, I mean, you know, he's got uh, John Gruber, Marco Arment, uh, John Syracuse does as he has a show called Hypercritical. Uh, he has Merlin Mann, who's kind of he's I, I, Merlin's not really like a Mac press guy, but uh, you know he has been influential in um, helping develop sort of productivity tools for the Mac, including uh, OmniFocus. So yeah, it's just he's. It's a really good network, and it's a really it's a really good set of podcasts, and I, I highly recommend it to anyone that, that uh, would want to listen to that. Um, my Dropbox app that I'd like to recommend is something called Dropvox. That's with a V instead of a B. Um, basically, all it is is you open up the app, uh, has this big record button on it, you and um, you hit record, and on, until you hit stop, it just records uh, an audio file. Once you hit stop, it uploads it to Dropbox, and it's available right there. And uh, before this, for years, I think for two years or so, I was using the um, the built-in voice memos um, app that iOS has, and I would sync it to iTunes, but that got to be such a pain because there's some bug. I don't know if it's in the app or if it's with iTunes, but occasionally it'll just duplicate all of them. And so, like, I'll go through it. I'll notice that you know it's taking up like twenty gigs, and so I have to delete all these extra files and stuff. And um, it's also annoying because the the voice memos aren't available until I actually sync my iPhone, which is happening less and less often now that I have other other apps that uh, can can operate autonomously, such like. Um, Instacast instead of using the the built-in podcast functionality. Um, what I primarily use Dropbox for um, is anytime I go to the gas pump and I fill up my car, I record the odometer and the um, the fuel sale price and the, the the total sale price, and I put all that information in a spreadsheet and I'm able to track you know exactly how many gallons I put in my car, how many miles I've driven. And um, what my fuel efficiency is over time, and and all of that, it's it just gives me a lot of data um, to help me analyze the efficiency of my car. So um, it, it it helps with that. Also, I'm, I'm sure there are a myriad of uses that you can come up with uh, for for using Dropbox. Do you guys do any? Mileage tracking. I'm, I'm. I don't think Nathan drives. Jason, do you? <laughs> <laughs> um, we we have a. It, it's kind of funny the situation. Uh, my girlfriend has an iPod and an iPad, and she actually bought. I think the app was just called Car Tracker, and since she always has one of those devices on hand, she actually uses that. Um, but, uh, amusingly enough, she put both of our cars, she put her car and my car in there and tracks them that way. Uh, it does, in addition to fuel management, it does general maintenance, maintenance minder tasks like fans, um, uh, fan filters, uh, the air filter, uh, oil changes in the oil filter as well. Um, and she <laughs> she made this tiny little notebook that is just a big grid with, uh, what is it, however many rows per page and three columns. Uh, and that we record the 
the trip A, the trip odometer, the total gallons put in, and then a third column for manual miles per gallon estimation. Um, I only use the first two columns. I just put in the miles per gallon and the trip odometer. And then whenever she's in the car, if she has nothing better to do, she opens up CarMinder and plugs all that information in for our car, for the car that we're in. Um, it's, it's a very manual syncing process. Um, but she uses CarMinder. I use, uh, and I just write it in the notebook whenever I'm filling up. Um, yeah, I think we could probably step into the 21st century for that. <laughs> Uh, so is is CarMinder an app? Yeah, it's uh, uh, last I knew, it's still iPhone only. Meaning that if you drop it on the iPad, it's gonna be it's only gonna be uh, the two X one X options. Um, I'm unsure of the price. It's been a really long time since I've actually seen it. Does it uh, does it offer any syncing to like online services or anything? No, that was the other limitation that kind of came out more recently is that it is a very classic app in the sense that all of the information is stored on itself. So if you if you don't restore from backup when you have a new device or anything of that sort, poof. Yeah, that's sort of I, – I looked at some of the um, mileage tracking apps on the App Store, but that was sort of like my big hesitation is that um, you know if something happens to the device that – all that information will be gone, mm-hmm. or like even even I might even have a backup. But if the device goes, I might lose um, a set of it, like a few pieces of information. And then once you have a gap, it's really hard to sort of fill it in mm-hmm. because, like, there was this one time it was like a year and a half ago. I forgot to get the odometer, and it's still bugging me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, even though I, I have accurate, you know, because I know what my odometer is now, and I know what it was when I bought the car, I can know exactly how many gallons I put in and how many miles I went, but not having it then, it's just, it still bothers me. <laughs> anyway. it's, the, it's the point in your efficiency graph where it takes a nosedive all the way to the uh, to the bottom line x-axis. Well, I um, I didn't want to have something like that, so I actually computed the average. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the line remains consistent for that for that yeah. data point. Very good. Well, yeah, I, I wanted to make sure that it didn't affect the average, but I also, you know, didn't want it to look like, you know, a nosedive or a discontinuity in the graph. So I basically computed what the average was um, and and used that as the value. But the cell is now now has a background of red indicating that this is a value this is I a made fake up. Value. <laughs> exactly. Do not trust it for accurate car maintenance information. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, it's amazing. I've tracked um, almost two years and uh, 30,000 miles on my car. So um, I, it's using um, voice, record, voice memos and now Dropbox has just been really handy to, uh, to do that. Voice memos actually prevented me from syncing uh, maybe about a month ago. Uh, I had a, a pretty significantly long recording, like an hour and a half recording quite some time ago. And over time between device upgrades and device restores uh, and then a completely different device and whatnot, uh, I wound up having like four copies of this couple hundred meg file in iTunes. And it eventually got to a point for whatever reason that I was getting a specific error code whenever I would sync. And uh, looking at it, one of the suggested fixes was to clean out voice memos. So what I did was I took the voice memo and I just threw it in a non-iTunes library managed section of my file system. And then I just blew away everything in there. I took out all of the voice memos from the application itself. I took all of the voice memos out of the iTunes music library itself. 
and I've pretty much stopped using voice memos, or if I have to in a pinch, um, I have the mental note now to take the file out, uh, sync and take the file out absolutely immediately. Yeah, there's something wrong with the syncing with that, and like I said, it just drove me crazy after a while, so... Um... You know, if you're interested, my recommendation is Dropbox. It's been very good. I mean, it has a few limitations. Um, like, if you if it starts uploading and then you close the app, um, it stops uploading. Uh, it doesn't have the the background task capability. Yeah, apparently not. I'm. I mean, this is just sort of informal testing, but um, yeah, it 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 wasn't until I reopened the app that it like. I don't know, resumed or restarted the upload and then it was able to finish. Mm -hmm. Uh, But fortunately, if, for example, you record something and you're not connected to uh, a network, then it will store it. And it'll even, you know, if you record like five things and you're not connected to any any internet uh, connection, it'll store them. And then once it gets an internet connection later on, it will then upload them. But you have to open the app for it to do that. But... Mm. I think that's it's an acceptable compromise. All right. So I guess it's about time for our app of the week. Um, so Nathan, do you want to just take this away? Sure. We have selected Portal 2. And <laughs> I, I enjoyed it thoroughly. That was my... <laughs> it was... It was fun. It was challenging. It, I felt like a fuller game than the first one and um was significant because it was one of the most anticipated games of the year and one of the best received games of the year and also because it was released simultaneously for mac pc xbox ps3 and maybe i think that's all okay but um until recently the valve the developer only released for PC, and about five-ish months, something like that, they they created a client for, for the Mac for their games, and now whenever you buy a game from them, it works on a Mac or a PC, and you can you get both copies when you buy the game. So pretend I've never heard of Portal or Portal 2 before. What is it about? It's a puzzle game, but it's also really very cinematic. Um, the you go through the game, and you you're a, a test subject in a science laboratory. It's set in the future by some varying amount, depending on which one you're talking about, which game. Um, but your your main interaction with the game is that you you try to get through the test chambers, and you have a portal gun to do that, so you can shoot an opening and an exit and the the goal of the game is to progress through in the, at least in the first one is to progress through these chambers and so they give you various challenges things you have to avoid um and various objects that you can interact with and you have to use your portal gun to make your way through the obstacle course and there's uh, oftentimes very very quickly it gets to a point where you cannot put a portal just anywhere. There's a there's specific sections where the portal can actually open up to, uh, can can actually be shot onto rather. Okay, now would I have to play Portal One uh, before I played Portal Two, or can I just jump right into Portal Two? 
you theoretically could jump right into Portal 2, but the story makes a lot more sense if you play Portal 1 first. And I listened to part of the developer's commentary. They geared Portal 2, especially the introduction, so that it could be your first Portal game. But really, the story is half the game, I think, and you lose a lot of that if you skip the first one. Yeah, it's it's generally wise to play through the first one again. Uh, the only... You're going to be able to do the game in full if you start out with the second one, but if you... Obviously, for story completeness sake, and for just to have fun with it, because all of the puzzles are unique, it's still worth it to play the first one. And I think, I think since they uh, brought it on Mac and put it on sale, the first Portal... Um, well, for first of all, when you buy Portal 2, uh, last I knew anyways, you get the first one anyways. And uh, even if that's not the case for uh, consoles, notably, uh, the first Portal is dirt cheap. It's either 10 or 20 bucks for pretty much everything nowadays. Well, it, only of... takes, it only takes a few hours to play through. It's not a huge investment. of. Okay. Yeah, the, the original Portal was very much... It was very much testing the waters in the sense that it is a complete game, especially to learn, and it'll take you a fair amount of time. Um, but it's definitely not as long as Portal 2, considering ever considering each of the features that it has. So what sort of system requirements does it have? Can I use the keyboard for a moment? Sure. <laughs> I think we'll probably edit this part out. Yeah, I, th- this is just kind of one of those things where you probably just want to find general requirements. Um, consoles require the console, and then computers. Um, I don't know which Windows version it takes, but I seem to remember reading 10.6.6 at a minimum. And then a Mac in the last, I don't know, two, three years maybe? There's the link. Oh, there it is, there it is. All right, Mac system requirements. Yeah, 1067 or later, Intel Core 2 Duo processor, 2 gigabytes of memory, and plenty of hard disk space. It says 7.6 gigabytes, and an ATI 2400 graphics card or better, or NVIDIA 8600M or higher, or Intel HD Graphics 3000. (laughs) I think those video cards put us... Basically, as far back as the unibody MacBook Pros, that general generation of any yeah, product that's... and forward. Okay, so probably not the uh, older Intel integrated ones on the regular MacBooks. Mm-mm. I I played Portal One on my my plastic MacBook with the graphics turned down, and it was doable. But Portal Two is a more intensive game, so it may not work. Okay, Portal Two is very very pretty. They they definitely put all that time into working on it. it I can't tell you how many times I fell into the lava because I was looking up and walking around. <laughs> <laughs> or whatever you call the lava stuff. Yeah. It's kind of a sludgy, dirty, muddy... Yeah. Something that you would not want to get caught in, period. That's that's enough for yeah. me. All right. So, I think... Uh... I think that'll do it. Um, do you guys have any last uh, words that you want to add uh, before we close out the show? How about Nathan? Do you have any last words? Not really. Not really. Okay, Jason. Fortunately, I have to say the same thing. I'm draw. I'm thinking of anything else, and nothing's okay. really coming to mind. Well, we had a few other things. Like uh, there was some speculation about whether or not Apple would make a TV. Um, 
I don't know. Do it. Kind we, of got we, lost in the sea of security. I think we did. Yeah, yeah, we're over an hour right now, so I think we uh, we should probably call it a show. But um, I don't know. Maybe we can talk about it uh, next time. It's good to plan as any. All right. Well, this has been the uh, Ask Different podcast, an unofficial podcast about Apple, created by members of the Ask Different community. And uh, hopefully you will be able to join us next time. All right. Thank you. <laughs>